Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I took a bike ride this morning to the church cemetery in Provincetown, Massachusetts, where the Lady of the Dunes is buried. And on a bicycle from my house, it's about 15 minutes. It's the end of July right now in Provincetown, so the humidity is high. It's sunny. The town is full of tourists and cars and buses and people pulling their luggage on the sidewalks and eating in restaurants. It's also exactly 45 years ago from when the woman's body was found on July 26, 1974 in the dunes somewhere between uh, Province Lands Visitor Center and the dune shack that's on the coastline. This is a podcast of the Cape Cod Times about the Lady of the Dunes case and other unidentified bodies, skeletal parts, and unsolved homicides in our region. My name's Marianne Bragg. I'm one of the reporters at the paper here. And with me today by phone is Claire Glenn, who's going to tell us all about DNA. And she's an assistant professor at the Henry C. Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Sciences at the University of New Haven in Connecticut. Uh, We're going to talk today about genetic genealogy and DNA. And I first uh, had the chance to talk to Claire when I was preparing a story in April um, where we were, I was writing about um, the Cape and Islands District Attorney, Michael O'Keefe, is using genetic genealogy and DNA analysis to try to solve two homicide cases. One, uh, he still doesn't want to say too much about it, but it uh, involves an unidentified victim. And the second case is this Lady of the Dunes case. Um, and he's hoping to at least to try to identify her. So welcome, Claire. Thank you for coming. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me. First of all, back in April, you told me um, about how you had been testing uh, commercial DNA tests to find out about your genealogy. So would you tell me a little bit about that experience? And Sure. Um, yeah, so back in about 2016, it was kind of around October 2016, um, like a lot of the other people in the world, I uh, was seeing these ads on the TV for these genetic testing, um, Ancestry.com type uh, uh, products that were being released out onto the market where you could um, get an estimation of exactly what your ethnicity was. Um, I found it particularly intriguing, not just because I'm a forensic DNA um, specialist, but also because I'm actually adopted as well. So I was curious as to, you know, what's my mixed bag of um, ethnicity or ancestry, essentially, uh, tracing back over the years. 
Um, uh, in case you can't tell, this is not a Connecticut accent as well. So um, I'm actually from Ireland and I, I emigrated to the US uh, five years ago. Um, so, you know, Ireland being quite a small country, you never know um, what sort of ancestry might be there, whether it was uh, immigrants moving throughout or, or, or however. So um, I ordered, I spent fifty nine ninety nine. I think it was in 2016 um, on the 23andMe website. Um, about four or five days later, um, I received the kit in the mail and it was very, very self-explanatory. It was very nicely packaged and easy to read and easy to do. You just received this long conical tube that you spat into up to a particular line. It was quite a, a large amount of spit, I will say. It was <laughs> took me a while to do it. Um, and then it was, I, I did feel very strange placing it back into the envelope and going out to the front of my building here at work at the University of New Haven and popping it into the mailbox. Um, it, there is something quite strange about sending your body fluids out in the general mail, but nonetheless, I said this is the the age that we live in now, and um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this. So over the course of maybe four weeks after that, they they tell you to download the app, which I did on my phone, and um, I found it quite exciting because they would send you notifications every maybe once a week um, saying, oh, your sample has been received. We have it now. It's just being um, started to be processed. The next week it was it's being extracted. The DNA is being extracted out oh. of your sample. Yeah. Now it's being amplified. Um, and now it's going into the, the sequencer. It told me something along those lines. Okay. So you were kind of had this real-time update um, of what was happening to your sample and you were kind of being kept on the edge of your seat of, oh, we're getting there, it's moving along, it's processing. So about four weeks later, I um, got the notification that your results are in, log into the app to see them. And I hadn't really thought much about what it was going to say. I hadn't really anticipated, you know, what, whether it's going to be French, Irish, German, European, you know, I, I hadn't really thought what I wanted to see is probably what I'm trying to say. Okay. Um, I just I just opened it up and bam, there it was. It was all blue and it was said 98.2% Irish or as I like to say, 98.2% potato. <laughs> um, and But as I said, I, I wasn't expecting anything I, I, I wasn't you know I hadn't thought about what it was going to say but I did have this kind of momentary moment of oh is that all like <laughs> you know am I am I just Irish <laughs> like, and I did have disappointment for for a few minutes but don't get me wrong in the slightest now I am extremely proud to be Irish yeah um, my blood runs green you know I'm 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 the biggest celebrator of of Ireland of anyone um but you know I I been excited to think that I might learn about, you know, kind of this mixed bag of, of different cultures that might be a part of me. But then, you know, no, 98.2% potato, you know, you don't really get stronger than that. So um, I did have kind of a, a momentary feeling of, oh, is that it? Um, but nonetheless, you know, I was still, this is interesting. It's amazing that they can do this. And being a scientist and particularly a forensic scientist, um, you know, I was looking up how they go about this, how yeah. they, what uh, segments of the DNA are they looking at, how are they tracing this back, um, and I was intrigued, and I thought, isn't this amazing that we live in this time 
where we're now able to do this. You know, 10 years ago, we didn't even think something like this was really even possible. Um, but, you know, with the advancement in our molecular technologies, um, especially over the last decade or so, or uh, two decades, really, um, we're at this really advanced stage now where we can, we can get information at unprecedented levels. On the um, spit into the tube... Um, oh, spit into the tube, yeah. Yeah, so from there, what happens? Can you just briefly explain how they get to this, what is called the SNPs report? Um, well, it depends upon the company that is uh, receiving the sample. A lot of their uh, methods would be proprietary, so it would, I wouldn't be able to say exactly what they're doing. But really from saliva... Inside saliva is your DNA, and there's quite there's quite a bit of saliva inside in your DNA as well. It's a bit of there's quite a bit of DNA inside in your saliva. If you think about the the epithelial skin cells that are on the inside of your cheeks mm-hmm. of your mouth, mm-hmm. the buccal epithelial cells they're called, they essentially become sloughed off or, you know, kind of fall off in your mouth and go in with saliva, oh. and then you're spitting that into the tube. Oh, also like those the inside buccal, of your... Okay, okay. Those buccal epithelial cells contain quite a lot of DNA and good quality DNA that's nicely protected as well, which is good. So if you get a, a very good, decent amount of a sample, you're going to get a decent amount of DNA. Uh, a decent amount of a saliva sample, you're going to have ample um, DNA in there. So essentially the first step, you know, and this goes for all sorts of forensic DNA typing as well, is um, extracting out the DNA from that. If you think of your DNA, your double helix, it's that nicely wound ribbon-like structure, but that's inside a nucleus. So it's nicely protected inside um, in the nucleus, but we have to break through that membrane to get in there and isolate out and purify so that you're getting just the DNA um, out of that uh, and you have just a nice uh, pure DNA sample um, from that. You want to get rid of all the other cellular contaminants, essentially, um, other debris and stuff like that that would be in there, cellular debris as well, um, and, and isolate it out to a nice pure, purified sample. Once you have that purified sample... Um, of extracted DNA where it's just pure DNA, mm-hmm. um, you want to quantitate it because you need to see how much DNA have you got there in that one extract um, because really going forward onto the next step is um, uh, you need to have a certain amount going in, a, a, pretty much a precise amount going into the next um, step essentially. So then in terms of you're looking at like you, let's say you're looking at the SNPs, the single nucleotide polymorphisms, yeah. or if you're looking at the STRs, the short tandem repeats, yeah. which is what we look at in forensic DNA typing, you know, our traditional forensic DNA typing. Um, after that, you're essentially using like a molecular photocopier. So you're targeting in, you, you make this kind of cocktail mixture. It's a master mix. Um, containing these what we call primers and probes, which are pre-designed, you know, manufactured um, copies of particular segments of DNA, that it goes into this um, mixture with your own DNA, with 
the DNA that you want to um, amplify or photocopy mm-hmm. and it goes to particular segments along that person's DNA chain. It, it knows where to go. It knows where to latch on essentially. Um, and it basically builds itself, rebuilds itself like a photocopier making copies upon copies upon copies of these segments. So whenever someone says, like, you know, they're looking at your DNA, they're not looking at your whole string of DNA, which is 3.5 billion base pairs long. That's a huge amount of information. You're only targeting particular segments of it because these particular segments that we know is where the information regarding your ancestry, regarding your eye colour, your hair colour, your skin colour is along the segments of, of, of those particular fragments of your DNA. Like that's, so we amplify up those ones. That's You're describing the part that's unique to each person, yes. right? Which is a very small percentage. Am I yeah. saying that right? Uh-huh. So, like, with the um, processing that they're doing... They're looking at those segments, essentially, and they're seeing, say, with the short tandem repeats, they're seeing how many times they're repeated. Or with the single nucleotide polymorphisms, they're looking at just the base substitutions that are happening there. So what has been uh, at this, like, mutation, this point mutation um, there? So what makes it different from person one to person two? Um, And it's all based then upon population studies uh, and what information they already have from all the people that they've already collected from. Now, in preparation for for this um, interview today, I said, oh, I'm just going to look up on my app the 23andMe um, uh, profile that I had before. I haven't looked at it, got at least a year. And this was three years ago that I submitted it first. And three years ago, it said 98.2% Irish. And I just looked at it today, and now it says 92.6% or something like that, um, 92.6% Irish. So I've gone down in my Irishness um, <laughs> over the last mean? three years. Now, that's, I don't think that's because I've been living in America and I'm starting to lose my accent or anything like that. Um, it's that their population studies oh. and what in their databases has been growing in these three years. So they're learning more and okay. more and more by every person that is contributing to these databases. Okay. If you think about in the last three years, you know, every Father's Day, every Mother's Day, every Christmas, yeah. um, every big event, it's like the ads on the TV are saying, you know, reduce now to forty nine ninety nine. Um, you know, get your Father's Day present and learn more about your ancestry. So it's it's a very common gift that people give to each other now. Um, so as they're learning and more people are contributing to this and more people spitting in the tubes and popping it in the mail, the more that they're learning about, like, the, the sequences of DNA, the, the population that's out there and what's in their DNA, and therefore they adjust their ancestry information based upon that. Okay. Um, so I, I was interested to see that it had gone down for me, and there was now a bit of French and a bit of German um, in there that was never there before. So obviously more people are contributing, which then adjusts their population um, statistics essentially for it. The short tandem repeats, that type mm-hmm. of analysis is what is done with the traditional CODIS database mm-hmm. that's really has been used for kind of like a one-to-one match 
where the CODIS database is full of people who have been convicted of crimes or other types of government data. And then the short tandem repeat is a type of analysis where they would take um, maybe an unidentified DNA evidence from a crime scene and try to match it one-to-one with the CODIS database versus the um, SNPs report is what's now being used with the genetic genealogy that um, prosecutors or investigators are using to try to build out the family tree and figure out a cousin or like they have an unidentified DNA, but they try to use through the SNPs report. Is that right? Um, in a way, yes. So, <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> you're, you're definitely in the right direction. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, our traditional forensic DNA typing is is just what you were saying there. It's using those short tandem repeats, so mm-hmm. STRs. And, um, you know, up until January 1st, 2017, we had 13 STRs. So it was our CODIS 13. Um, And that is 13 particular locations along the human genome um, that are known to be extremely variable between individuals across the world. So at one of those STR locations... I might have six repeats, whereas you, Marianne, might have eight repeats. And it's that variability that allows us to be able to identify you versus me and have your profile and my profile and say, these are not the same. These are two different people. Um, Whenever you think about the CODIS DNA database, the CODIS DNA database houses all of the STR profiles um, of convicted offenders, essentially, in the United States. So anyone that's been convicted of a crime, their DNA is in there. Various states have different laws, like regarding how long it can stay in their their, um, database and things like that. Um, But essentially, let's say I have a crime scene and we suspect that this blood stain on the door handle came from the perpetrator as they were exiting. Um, so we'll swab up that blood stain. We will extract out the DNA from it. We will amplify it, separate and detect it, perform STR profiling on it. And then we will search the CODIS DNA database with that profile. So we have a questioned profile is what we, we call it. Now we can search through Um, the CODIS DNA database and it can come back with no hits as in this person has never, does not currently have a profile um, in the CODIS DNA database. But then if we have a suspect, we um, can uh, get a court order to retrieve a known DNA profile from that person. So a police officer would swab the inside of this person's cheek. We would uh, STR profile that sample and then we will compare that questioned sample from the crime scene mm-hmm. to this known sample that we've co- we've collected from the um, suspect. We compare the profiles. It's just a, a bunch of numbers really in, in its simplest form. It's, it's telling you the number of repeats at each STR loci um, or location and if it matches, it matches. You've got, you know, um, all of the locations are saying the same on the question versus the known and that that's how we do that one-to-one comparison. Um, the CODIS DNA database is not necessarily a one-to-one because there's so many in there. It's searching through. Now, you can, through the CODIS DNA database, um, do what we call familial searching, yep. um, which is looking for family members. So, right. 
you know, you will, you obviously receive half your DNA from your mom, half your DNA from your dad. So that's reflected in your STR profile, you know, where you might have one, um, you've got two peaks essentially at each locus, one from mom, one from dad. And let's say you got the six repeat from mom and the eight repeat from dad. You're then looking for, say, half a match essentially throughout the CODIS DNA database. Now, familial searches, whenever they were first suggested um, several years ago, it was kind of, ooh, should we be doing this? Like, you know, is this infringing upon, um, you know, people who have not convicted a crime, your family member hasn't hasn't convicted a crime or, or things like that. Should familial searches be allowed? It was seen by some people as it's, you know, an infringement on privacy and rights and things like that. Um, but really, that, that that's been quashed, um, not across the board, but, you know, it is allowed in a lot of places. In Massachusetts, um, they are getting ready to file a bill in the legislature that would allow that uh, familial yeah. searching. Yeah, and there's several places in, in um, the U.S. that allow it. Sometimes I'm on the fence about all of these things, as well with the forensic genealogy of using, you know, online commercial sites that people have unwillingly consented to, um, uh, you know, the police using this, using their DNA to find the killer or or the suspect or, or however you want to look at it. Certainly, you know, going back to whenever three years ago, whenever I spat in the tube and put it in the mail, never in my wildest dreams did I think that one day that information that I had just put in the mail could then be used in a criminal investigation, that my DNA could be used to link me to um, a killer in some way or, or, or a convict of some sort, you know? Um, and so- I work in the industry. I work in forensic science. So you would think that you know, <laughs> I, I would be more aware than most, but three years ago, I wasn't thinking that. Three okay. years ago, my biggest concern um, was actually health insurance companies. Right. That, you know, this is unregulated. The health insurance companies could hack the system. They could, um, you know, see, uh, get the genetic information from your DNA to say that you have, you know, a 90% susceptibility to the development of breast cancer or ovarian cancer or something like that. And therefore, you wouldn't be eligible for health insurance. That's what my big concern was at the time. And with 23andMe, you have that choice of, do you want ancestry and health or do you want just ancestry or just health? And I had specifically demanded that it was just ancestry. I didn't want any information on health because of my fears with regards to, you know, health insurance companies getting their hands on this kind of information. With the genetic genealogy and the private companies like 23andMe, all of those databases are still private, but the people who use those have the option to download their DNA profile, which is that's the SNPs analysis. Mm-hmm. They can download mm-hmm. that profile and load it into databases that are more public. And that's mm-hmm. it's those more public databases with mm-hmm. is where now the police can start to look and investigate. Yeah. It's not it's not the twenty three and me. Those are all continue to be private. It's just if yeah. If people choose to download their analysis, their profile, I guess, to places like GEDmatch, which is a more public, then that's where the police 
have the opportunity to try to match up. Am exactly. I, is that right? <laughs> that's what I think. Is that that's correct? Or yeah, that's correct. So you're using the word um, private, which is correct. It's private today. Whenever I went to look up my profile again, I had to log in. I had to use my ID and my password to log in and, and to see my profile. Um, private is all very well and good, but when something isn't protected or regulated, it's open to anything. So hacking can occur of these sites very easily um, and that information could be taken and, and used without your consent. Now, whenever you think of, yes, you can, it's the, the police are using, say they used GEDmatch, which was the online open free tool um, that they used to uh, catch the Golden State Killer. Yep. And as you were saying that, yes, I'm a 23andMe user. I can download my raw data and I can upload it to GEDmatch. And there it's freely and publicly available for anyone in the world to see. I, I didn't do that. I, I said, that's not a smart thing to do. But hundreds of thousands of people have. Mm -hmm. um, and the other problem is, um, it, and it's one that, you know, people probably aren't aware of is whenever you go onto your uh, genetic profile on these sites, um, not the open ones, the one that you've, you're, you're considering being private that you have the login and the, and the password for, um, and you'll see things like share your profile with your relatives. And lots of like family members are now doing this as like a group activity almost, um, where everyone at Christmas got one of these in the mail and they all sent it off to, to see this. Now, if I share my profile on this app or on the website with a family member or someone that has said, I, today I saw I have a new one that she's my second cousin and it says share your profile with her, I didn't select that button because I was like, you know what, that's my information, not hers. Yeah. I don't know who she is. Um, but people are doing that. Okay. So you've shared your profile perhaps with someone, but you don't know what that someone is going to do with it. Um, and they could inadvertently and very in innocently, you know, yeah. upload it to GEDmatch without your consent. Can I just ask you specifically about the Lady of the Dunes? So mm -hmm. if they, so they're going to need to do a SNPs type analysis similar to um, what they would do for the pro like the 23andMe and so on. I know for sure that they, this is a little gruesome, but I know for sure they have her skull at the medical okay. examiner's office. I believe based on a public records request that they have tissue sample of a leg, left scapula, right scapula, ribs, and hair samples. Uh -huh. Is that enough? It seems like the SNPs report requires a lot more ma biological material. So... Don't misinterpret that the um, commercial companies um, require a lot of DNA because to run SNP analysis, you need a lot of DNA. They're requiring quite a large amount of spit. I think it's like five mils or something like that um, because they're taking into account that not everyone might be shedding out the same amount of buccal epithelial cells out of their mouth. Um, and, you know, some people might only might, might have had a lot of water in their mouth or something like that that would have diluted it down. 
So while SNP analysis is certainly not as, um, you know, we can do low coffee number analysis with our traditional STR DNA profiling, um, where we only need a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of DNA. We do need um, a decent amount for SNP analysis, but it's not a huge amount. It's not, you know, I, I would I would suspect I haven't seen the samples of the Lady of the Dooms mm-hmm. um, at all, but you're saying a tissue sample and there's skeletal remains. I would say that there, there should be enough there, but it's also determining, it's also important to um, have an assessment of what the uh, quality of that DNA is about. So it's not just about the quantity of DNA, DNA that's there, it's the quality, because over time, your DNA degrades. Um, you know, after someone um, passes away and their body is decomposing and the body is exposed to environmental insults, essentially, mm-hmm. like heat and moisture and UV light and things like that, um, that's going to break down the DNA. So imagine your big, nice, long chain of DNA yeah. and it becoming broken in areas. And we okay. don't want the areas that we need to oh. be the broken parts, you okay. know? Mm-hmm. So we might want to target a particular segment, and if that's broken, we can't get any information from it because we can't amplify that up. Okay. So I know this was quite a number of years ago, and um, the body was exposed to the elements um, for for a while, at least, anyways, and there was some decomposition. Mm-hmm. Um but I would, I would say, you know, they probably have a good chance of still getting um, a SNP profile from it, essentially. You know, the first case was the Golden State Killer that, mm-hmm. that was caught using these method, using this new genetic genealogy method. Um, I, I, I do think it's absolutely phenomenal that they were able to do that. I think one of my favorite parts of it as well was that, um, I don't know if you know, but April 25th is DNA Day. Um, so April <laughs> no. 25th. Yeah, it's um, April 25th, 1953, was when the publication uh, first came out of the discovery of DNA's double helix, you know, by Watson and Crick and Wilkins and Rosalind Franklin. And then April 25th, 2003, was the completion of the first human genome sequence. And then last year, it was April 25th, 2018, when um, uh, the DA, the district attorney in Sacramento, announced the arrest of um, Joseph D'Angelo. So it's really April 25th has now become my favorite day. That's (laughs) awesome. But uh, it it really is quite interesting that it's happening like that. But ever since then, you know, since that's like just over a year ago, what are we talking, a year and three months or Mm -hmm. so? You know, there has been probably over 100 cases um, across the United States and and, um, in Europe as well using this method to help apprehend um, killers and rapists and very serious offenders that we wouldn't have been able to do before. So um, it really is quite amazing that it's come to this. But I think, like anything, we do need to have some sort of policy and regulation on the use of it. The public needs to be um, educated on it, of of what exactly is happening with this, because it, it's a tricky thing. You know, you are a single user can essentially unknowingly cast a web of legal suspicion around hundreds of family members. <laughs> now, if all your family members are innocent parties, what's the harm, really, if we can catch a killer? But you know, it has to be regulated and has to be policies governing this. 
Um, and I think it's it's this summer that the Golden State Killer trial is occurring. I don't know if it has started yet. Um, I haven't heard anything about it on um, uh, on the news sites about Jeez. it or anything. But, yeah. you know, this summer is really when the prosecutors, the prosecutors involved in all of this is going to have to really defend yeah. um, uh the, the constitutionality essentially of this new method and right. um, so I'll be really interesting to read um, how they go about that whenever the first cases do go to trial this summer so it'll be quite an interesting summer to keep an eye on this method as it moves forward um, Thank you Thank you so much Okay Listeners can find out more about uh, Lady of the Dunes at capecodtimes.com forward slash Lady of the Dunes. A special thanks to Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com for the music for our show. Thank you again, Claire, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.